Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walk on over to Walters as next month the XFL returns to D.C. at nearby Audi Field. Season opener is on February 19th. Walters is also the spot to be in Navy Yard for all of the NFL playoffs. Doubleheader this Saturday, tripleheader Sunday, and Tom Brady versus Dallas on Monday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the 2-1 pitch. Swing a high drive right field deep toward the corner. Way back it goes toward the foul pole and gone into the second deck above the Nationals' bullpen. Pair of walks, a three-run homer for Corey Dickerson makes it four nothing St. Louis. And that is Dickerson's fourth homer of the year. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. The first episode of the Nats Chat podcast in 2023. I would say Happy New Year, but it feels like it's too late to be saying Happy New Year. So I will say hello. Uh, it's nice to have you with us, along with Nats Insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the. Al Galdi podcast. Not one, but two special guests are on the way. The radio voices of the Nationals, Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler. Very excited for this. The first ever dual guest scenario on the Nats Chat podcast. We also have some Nats news to discuss since the last installment of the pod. Uh, I know there, there hasn't exactly been a truckload of Nats news lately, but there has been some stuff, including a free agent acquisition that uh, has developed over the last 48 hours. Uh, but Mark, hello. I will begin by asking you this. Are you tired yet of writing the phrase minor league contract with an invite to major league spring training? Have you gotten your fill yet of writing that phrase? Yeah, I've definitely gotten my fill out of that one, Al. I also am plenty much done with writing who's going to be the left fielder for the Nationals. Well, we may finally have our answer because they made a move uh, just a little while before we record this that that could solve that problem. But it's been a slow winter. Let, let's be honest. I think we knew this was going to be the case all along. We didn't expect there to be a lot. And I think what's also interesting is they clearly had a handful of positions they needed to fill, and they've done that. But I think it's pretty notable how much or how little they're spending to fill those positions. You're talking about $2 million a pop in most of these cases. And doesn't mean it can't work out. Sometimes these players can actually be better than that salary number would uh, figure. But it is pretty dramatically different from what we've seen from them in the past. And it's pretty clear that whatever budget Mike Rizzo has been given by ownership, it's very minimal. 
Well, before we get to the acquisitions of Corey Dickerson and Dominic Smith, the ownership situation, are you hearing anything? Because there is like nothing out there and there has been nothing out there for weeks, if not months now. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing's happening. We know that the learners like to operate in secrecy. And so maybe just everyone involved is doing a great job of keeping things secret and nobody's leaking anything. But of course, no news may also mean that nothing is happening. What's going on? What do we know about the sale of the team? Not much, like you said. And sure, what you outlined there, it's certainly possible that there's a lot of movement behind the scenes and they've been able to keep it under wraps. I will just say that whatever stuff is getting out, and I'm not just talking about publicly, but people around the baseball industry, there is very little sense among anybody I've talked to that they believe this is going to get done anytime soon. And I think there is a growing understanding that this very well is going to go into the next season. And, you know, even if it did happen, say before opening day, it's way too late to have any impact on what happens as far as this year's roster is concerned. So it's almost like if it's not going to happen until April, is it really any different if it happens in April than if it happens in July or September? As troubling as that may sound, I don't know that it makes a whole lot of difference. Once we crossed over into January of this year, I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of difference, but I do not sense that there's a whole lot of optimism of anything happening soon. And we all know the reasons why that is. I don't think anything has changed there. And I think that's the concerning part is what would have to change in order for this to actually gain momentum and something to get done. These aren't the kind of things that you think would just kind of flip and all of a sudden there'd be one development. Okay, there it is. They're set. These are long-term complicated scenarios that have been going on for a long time. And I'm not sure why I would have any reason to believe that that's suddenly going to change here in the next you know month or two. Well, we've talked about this. Given the rebuilding state of the Nats, if ever there had to be a time in which you had ownership uncertainty, you could argue that now is the time because even if the team had new ownership, it may well be that the team would still be operating this offseason as the team has been operating. Let me ask you this. I mean, is it possible that the learners end up holding on to the team for a year or two or more if they're not getting the price that they want? It, you know, could it be that the era of learners' ownership actually ends up continuing into, say, 2024, maybe even beyond? I don't think it's outrageous to suggest that, given what we've seen. And like I just said, it's not like there's some magic light switch that's going to flip that's going to change the dynamic. So unless they're just willing to lower the price. And unless the TV deal suddenly gets worked out in a way that it hasn't for over a decade now, I don't know you know, why it would change. So yeah, I think that's a possibility. But the problem you run into there, and it's certainly within their rights to say, hey, we think this franchise is worth X number of dollars, and we're going to hold out until we get that. But the problem is nothing that they have done over the last 18 months has increased the value of the franchise. It's decreased the value of the franchise. So if that is ultimately how this goes, and this takes a while, and they're trying to prop it back up, how do they make that happen? Are they willing to invest more in the team and the franchise to prop it up? and Or are they just going to say, we're going to have to wait until the team starts to win again, and that boosts everything? I mean, there's no timeline for any of that kind of thing to happen. So if they think that the price is going to go up, I don't know why the price on you know, in January of 2023 is going to look all that different than the price in January of 2024, barring some dramatic 
improvement by the team or a change in their philosophy as far as how they want to spend on trying to improve the team. Yeah. And, you know, I don't even know if the fortunes of the team impact the valuation of the team that much. Like, I think the television situation is a much bigger factor. Like, there's an ebb and flow, obviously, to like how teams do. And I actually think you could argue, hey, the team being bad, payroll being down, that actually might increase the likelihood of the team being sold because you're going to buy a team with which you can do basically whatever you want. But yeah, the television deal would seem to be a massive obstacle to all of this. And like we've said with the learners, I mean, we know their nature, like they are masters of grinding out deals. And it's part of why they've been very successful. But, you know, uh, don't expect lightning quick uh, transactions when you do business with the learners. There's also this too. And, you know, it's crazy how this stuff goes. But it was this past July 2nd that the Nance announced that they had exercised the 2023 contract options on Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. We are dancing this dance once again of contractual uncertainty with Mike and Davey beyond the upcoming season. Where do you think they're at? What do you think they're thinking? And what could happen with them? I mean, if the team isn't sold by the time that the learners would have to make a decision on Mike and Davey for next year... Then what with them? I mean, you know, you, you really can twist your mind into all kinds of yoga poses thinking about the ramifications of this ownership uncertainty. And this is what is frustrating most people within the organization. And I'm not just talking about the GM, the manager, but the whole coaching staff, the whole front office, almost everybody who works for them is kind of in this same limbo right now where they kind of already had gotten to the point that they came to grips with the fact that the team is going to be sold. And that could mean changes. But they just wanted that process to take place and hopefully be done by the end of this past season or sometime this winter so that they could go into this year knowing what was going to be happening and knowing what is my job security. And if you can't even answer the question to the people at the very top of the organization, how are all the people that work below them going to have any way of knowing? They're not. And so I think that more than anything is what has frustrated people across the whole organization. They just want some clarity. These are people's lives we're talking about here, uh, their livelihoods. And they're kind of all stuck in this lame duck limbo until something happens at the top. Now, I would guess if it's still a sale process, it's not like they change their mind and say, well, we're not going to sell the team after all. I would guess they just kind of keep pushing these things down the road and maybe they see if they can sign them for another year. But at some point, Mike Rizzo, David Martinez, or anybody else whose contract expiring might say, I don't want to be in this limbo any longer. I may have an opportunity for more security somewhere else. And that's within their rights at that point to do that. So I do think they run the risk of something like that happening, especially if the rebuild doesn't go so well this year and they're saying, boy, I don't know if this is really the place I want to be for a while. So yes, there's a whole lot of reasons why it benefits everyone in the organization if the sale happens sooner rather than later. And the longer it drags out, the more questions it, it brings up. Especially at a time at which the Nats are trying to beef up their front office and Mike Rizzo is trying to expand what the Nats do from an analytic standpoint and a sports science standpoint. You know, you think about this, okay, if you're the Nats and you're going to these rising up and coming Ivy League types who have all kinds of career options and you're trying to hire them to come work for you, 
Why would those people come work for you when you could be out and the ownership of the team could change and the whole front office could get blown up within the next, you know, 12 months or so? Like, so there's that aspect of this too. It is imperative that the Nats get better with their scouting and player development and drafting. And we've talked about that so much. Well, how do you get better at that? Well, I think it's pretty clear the Nats have needed to beef up and improve their infrastructure. Well, how do you do that? With this ownership uncertainty, especially when the guy presiding over baseball operations has no uh, contractual certainty beyond the upcoming season. So, yeah, I mean, this remains the number one item with the Nats. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't feel like we'll be getting resolution anytime soon. And I'll add another scenario to all this. And it may sound like, oh, yeah, what's the likelihood of that happening? But it's certainly within the realm of possibility. What if we get to a point here where ownership you know, change hasn't happened? And let's say Kbert Ruiz has a really good season. C.J. Abrams has a really good season. And you want to start talking long-term deals to lock up the next foundation, the kind of moves that we all wanted them to do with the previous generation they weren't able to do. If it's still learner ownership and if the GM is still not under contract and the manager still isn't under contract, what are the chances of pulling something like that off? It's not impossible, but it's a lot harder. If I'm a player in that situation, I want to know what is the stability, what's the situation with the organization. Why do you think all the Braves players are willing to commit to them? Because they know that organization is as stable as it gets and they're positioned to win for a long time. You don't know that right now in DC. And so again, all these dominoes, these different things that are all important as this franchise tries to rebuild itself and none of it can really be accomplished until the answer to the largest question is answered. Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Manessis? Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need. More money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S. He specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC. Like Joey Menezes' big breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Both third base side of the rubber delivers. Breaking ball, line to left. That's going to be a base hit. Thomas tore the line to get it. And so Dominic Smith has his first hit of the year going the other way. It'll bring up Travis Jankowski. He'll be the eighth man to bat of the inning. It's the starter, Johan Adon. He bounced to second and grounded a single into right center. Well, while the Braves continue to lock up their young stud players to long-term arbitration season-eating, free agent season-eating contracts. Uh, the Nats have been dishing out one-year, $2 million contracts uh, in recent weeks. It was on January 4th that the Nats agreed on a deal with Dominic Smith, who was slated to be the Nats' uh, first baseman slash DH, uh, presumably in a rotation with our guy, Joey Fourbags, Joey Manessis. And uh, the pseudo-breaking news over the last, you know, 24, 48 hours, uh, the Nats reportedly agreeing with free agent outfielder Corey Dickerson on a one-year $2.25 million contract. Mark was all over this on Tuesday morning. I mean, you know, these are the waters that the Nats are swimming in this offseason, we know. I mean, on the last installment of the podcast, we talked about the Nats signing free agent infielder Jamer Candelario, and, you know, this is just kind of where the Nats are right now. I mean, I think when you're in the midst of a rebuild, these are the types of signings that you should be executing. It wouldn't make much sense for the Nats to go out and try to, you know, sign, say, Carlos Correa and say, hey, come here and take us from 55 wins to, you know, 72 wins or something like that. And even that would be a massive jump. So I get what the Nats are doing. It's obviously not super sexy. But in terms of these recent acquisitions, Dom Smith, Corey Dickerson, is it correct to say, hey, Dickerson will be your number one left fielder and Smith and Manessis figure to be in a rotation at, you know, first base slash DH? I think that's the way it's set up now. Now, there's still some more moves they can make. And maybe in theory, by spending so little on these, it gives you the flexibility to go get another player and have more of a rotation, potentially. I think we could be seeing more of a platoon at multiple positions this year than we've seen in the past. Corey Dickerson, solid numbers against righties, not good against lefties over his career, and barely even played against lefties last season in St. Louis. So maybe that's a scenario, at least as it's currently constructed, where he would get the starts against the righties and maybe Alex Call would start instead against lefties. Or maybe there is another free agent, a right-handed hitting outfielder that they would look at for that. I think Dom Smith, he was pretty clear in his press conference with us that he was told he's going to be the first baseman. And I also thought it was interesting that the team, we haven't actually formally heard from Mike Rizzo or David Martinez about these signings yet, but the team press release announcing Dom Smith signing called him a first baseman. Didn't call him an outfielder, didn't call him a first baseman slash outfielder. So that seems to be the indication. And everything that I've heard about him, what I've seen over the years myself when he was with the Mets, suggests he is a much better first baseman than an outfielder. So I think he's probably more often than not first base, and that puts Joey Manessis at DH, but you can flip-flop them if you need. Maybe against a lefty, you put Manessis at first. Maybe you even do something like Manessis is in left on a given day so that Dickerson sits. Candelario could move over to first base 
and Ildemaro Vargas could start at third. So I think they have some flexibility here to do different things. Again, these are not big moves. These aren't big names are going to make a huge difference, but I think they've addressed the needs they have and in a way that allows them to try to play for the best matchups that at least is possible in their situation. Yeah, I mean, these pretty clearly are signings just to play out the season. I do think the Dom Smith signing is interesting from this standpoint. So Dominic Smith, just a few years ago, was actually an excellent hitter for the New York Mets. Dominic Smith was a top 15 pick by the Mets. They took him with the number 11 pick in the 2013 draft. He's actually still fairly young. He's only going into his age 28 season. And while he ended up not being consistent enough with the Mets to be an everyday player, Dom Smith over the 2019 and 2020 seasons, 396 major league plate appearances, OPS plus of 150. He was actually a really good hitter for a couple of seasons with the Mets. Now he's fallen off in recent years, but that is a guy who, if you know he gets just right, and you know this is where we get back to coaching and player development and maximizing the players who you have, you know, maybe that's someone who could end up being a decent batter for you this season, and maybe you could flip them come the trade deadline. I mean, that's really what these signings are about. Like, these are not guys who are here to be with you for the long haul. These are guys who maybe they can have surprisingly productive seasons, and then you can turn them into a prospect or prospects. But I did like the Dom Smith signing because we have seen that upside, and the upside actually is pretty high. He was a really good hitter for the Mets just a few years ago. Yeah. And in his case, I'm not even going to go so far as to say this is just a one-year thing and try to flip him at the deadline. Let's keep in mind, he's only 27 and he was non-tendered by the Mets at the end of the season. But even though he signed a one-year deal, he's under team control for another season. He would be arbitration eligible next winter. So the Nats, if they choose to keep him, could do so for the next year and just have his salary go up through arbitration. He wouldn't be a free agent until after the 2024 season. So that's potential for someone who, if he did blossom and turn into the hitter that he used to be, maybe he could actually figure into this and maybe it was good enough for them to think, hey, let's see if we could lock him up even longer than that. You know, at, at his age, that's not a crazy thing to try to do. So I think that's a possibility. I think he seems optimistic that a few things could help him to get back to the hitter that he was. Having more consistent playing time, he sort of got squeezed in New York as Steve Cohen was going and spending money everywhere and filling every position. He was kind of the odd man out, and that hurt him somewhat. He certainly didn't get to play first base with Pete Alonso there. And while he struggled in left field, I think the sense I got is that that weighed on his mind as well. And the idea of being a first baseman where he's more comfortable could help him relax at the plate and not worry about defense as much. Maybe that has a positive effect. And then he also is a guy who, if you look at it, most of his rate stats last year were about in line with his career norms. The biggest difference, he hit the ball on the ground, didn't hit it in the air, didn't hit line drives. Now, we know that's been a problem for the Nationals, so can they help him fix that? I do think he is one of those candidates that the end of the shift could help him because now there are more holes on the right side of the infield to pull the ball and maybe a line drive over the second baseman's head is a hit now that it wasn't in the past. So I think there are reasons there to think it could come together and he could be more than just a stopgap for them for one year. Corey Dickerson is older. Uh, he's going into his age 34 season. He has played for a number of teams. If, if it feels like Corey Dickerson has bounced around, uh, that's because he has bounced around. He has played for seven major league teams over 10 seasons, but he has been a productive batter uh, last uh, one, two, three, four seasons, OPS plus combined 
of 106. He has not been a great defensive outfielder in recent seasons, but he is a guy who has shown an ability to hit and, uh, like Mark said, could be utilized in a platoon situation. Something else that has happened with the Nats since we last spoke on this podcast, uh, the signing of free agent pitcher Trevor Williams, two-year, $13 million contract. He's going into his age 31 season, had a good 2022 season for the Mets, was sort of a combo starter reliever, 89 and two-thirds innings, 30 games, including nine starts, ERA of 321, ERA plus of 120. He's a guy who can be used as both the starter and a reliever. And, you know, it's interesting what the Nats have now from a pitching standpoint, because we have the guys who the team is certainly going to try to establish as certified major league starters and anchors for the rotation for years to come, right? Cade Cavalli, Mackenzie Gore, Josiah Gray, Patrick Corbin is still on the team. But you also have now multiple, dare I say, Paolo Espino types, guys who can be used as both starters and relievers. Who knew that our guy Paolo would be a trendsetter for the Nats? But I like this Trevor Williams signing. I thought it was interesting, the reaction from Mets fans to him leaving the Mets. It was kind of like, oh, you know, he was good for us. The the Mets fans were not happy to see Trevor Williams leave. He actually did a pretty nice job with them. And I guess he'll end up being kind of a Paolo Espino type guy, you know, we'll end up seeing at the end of the season, His games and his game started, his G and his GS, and those two numbers won't be the same, that he'll be used in both ways. Not necessarily. And that's where I think this is interesting. So yes, I liked the signing and I I agreed with you. I looked at, boy, they have a bunch of these types now of guys who maybe could start or relieve, or maybe you could pair a couple of them up and get one time through the lineup each. Espino, Corey Abbott, Trevor Williams, even Mason Thompson, the Rule 5 pick they got, Thad Ward. These are all guys who could be on the staff, maybe not all at the same time, and fill that need. And I thought, oh, this could be kind of revolutionary. But the sense I got was that Trevor Williams signed with the Nats, well, for two reasons. One, they gave him a two-year deal, which I think is notable because that's the only multi-year deal they've given out so far this winter. I'm assuming it's going to be the only one they will give out. But secondly, he wanted to start. He wanted some assurances that he'd get a chance to start. And it sounds like that's what he was given here. Now, that means he goes into the season in their rotation. He has to prove that he deserves to stay in the rotation the whole year, which also then depends on who else would there be if he wasn't the best for the job. So I think in his mind, he's the number five starter. He's a full-time starter. I think the Nationals probably view it that way as well. But let's see how this plays out. If he is less effective as a full-time starter, and if they have some other options there, you can always move him to the bullpen. But I didn't necessarily get the sense that that was their intention going into this. Well, when I was a kid, it was my idea to replace Cal Ripken Jr. as the Orioles shortstop. So sometimes in life, that which we want and that which we end up getting are two different things. So we'll see what happens with Trevor Williams. But Don't give up hope on your dream out. There's still time. (laughs) There's still time. Well, maybe for the Nats, I actually have a shot. Who knows? The other thing that's happened since we last did this podcast, Orasmo Ramirez uh, has been re-signed. The Nats agreeing uh, with him on a one-year contract. This will be a trivia question in perpetuity. Who was the Nats' most valuable pitcher in the 2022 season? The answer is Orasmo Ramirez. He finished number one 
among all Nationals pitchers in wins above replacement for baseball reference at 1.5. That says a lot about a lot, clearly, but good to see Erasmo resigned. I mean, we talked so much about him. Uh, he did a good job last season. I mean, he finished with an ERA of 292, and he accumulated that over 86 in the third innings, which, as we have discussed, I mean, that is a sizable workload for a relief pitcher these days one of only three relievers in the majors to throw, I think it was 75 innings and have an ERA under three. So let's give them some credit for that. Now, was it a lot of low leverage situations? Sure. But they all count in the end and you still need somebody to pitch those innings. And every team needs a pitcher like that who will do whatever is asked of him and not just do it, but actually be successful at it. He did everything. He started a few times. He pitched long relief. He pitched late innings. He went extra innings. I mean, you name it, he was willing to do it. He'd go multiple days. He'd go three days in a row if asked. So I do think that was an important move to bring him back. And he fits into that same category, not really a starter, but a guy who can go multiple innings. If they wanted to get crazy with this and be revolutionary, they have the arms to try to pair up pitchers and try to get five or six innings out of two pitchers on one night. I know you love that idea, I haven't necessarily gotten the sense that that's where Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez's minds are going with this, but it would be interesting to see if they would give any of that a try. You know, you say that and you get me all excited and every season <laughs> I go into an ad season thinking that we might actually see that and then every season we end up not seeing that. So I am not going to get my hopes up, not yet anyway, okay? You probably can end up deluding me come February, March, but for now I'm trying to stay calm, stay even and uh, not get too excited about that possibility. But I am excited. We are excited about what is next. We're going to welcome on the radio voices of the Nationals, Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler. Going to have some fun with Charlie and Dave, and they will be on the Nats Chat Podcast after this. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi to tell you again about Window Nation. You know, it is home show season and Window Nation is bringing the home show savings to you. How about this deal? 0% financing for 60 months, five years, no interest. That's a deferred payment that even the learners are envious of. Plus two free windows with every two that you buy all of this without leaving the comfort of your home. Just go to windownation.com slash home show and try Window Nation's free virtual visualizer. Just upload a picture of your home and view hundreds of window options. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com slash home show. And don't forget to tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Here's the bottom line. If your current windows are sticking or drafty or cracked or hard to open or locking when they close, you need new windows. Get yourself some great Window Nation windows and take advantage of this deal. No interest for five years. Plus, you buy two windows, you get two free windows, and this goes for any style of window from Window Nation. And there's no limit. Buy four windows, get four windows free. Buy eight windows, get eight windows free. You get the idea. Save thousands of dollars on your new windows and save on your energy bills, all while upgrading the look and feel of your home. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com slash home show. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com slash home show. And don't forget to tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Outfield shades right, infield in all the way around. Turner and Seeger on the left side. Hernandez and Muncy on the right. Kelly's one-strike pitch. 
Swing a fly ball, center field deep. Bellinger going back to the warning track, to the wall. It's a grand slam. Howie Kendrick has done it. They're going crazy in the Nationals' dugout. Howie Kendrick with a grand slam here in the 10th inning of Game 5. The Nationals 7, the Dodgers 3. Do you believe it? Hudson has the sign now from Gomes coming set. Looks like they want to go in. Here's the kick now. The pitch, fastball, is hit in the air to left center field. Robles calling for it. He's under and waiting, and he makes the catch! He makes the catch! Bang! Zoom go the fireworks! The National League Championship winning Curly W is in the box! And for the first time since It is a true pleasure right now to welcome to the Nats Chat Podcast the radio voices of the Washington Nationals, Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler. Charlie has been a radio voice of the Nats since the franchise came to D.C. beginning with the 2005 season. Dave has been a radio voice for the Nats since 2006. All you need to do is say Charlie and Dave and every Nats fan knows exactly of whom you speak. Gentlemen, it is great to have you on. Welcome to Nats Chat. Charlie, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're after the first of the year, so the the clock is ticking on us now. Yeah, we're actually like starting to think about spring training. As a writer, I all the way through December, I refer to things that happened this season, and I talk about what's going to be next season. As soon as we hit January 1st, I start referring to this season, and now last season is anything that happened in 2022, so that gets me excited. Dave, I know like you guys communicate during the winter, but like, do you kind of go your separate ways, or do you still like stay in touch a lot over the course of the winter? This is our season of silence. So we're, we're kind of like polar bears in hibernation. So we poked our heads out and uh, we're getting close to February 2nd. So Groundhog Day, we're going to we're going to go back underneath. We have six more weeks until uh, first spring training broadcast. But no, I mean, I I'll text with Charlie now and again when, when moves happen. You know, we I actually I, I called him about 30 minutes before our our interview. I hadn't talked to him since uh, since before the holidays. So once in a while. But, yeah, we, we do kind of go our, our separate ways. But. I must say it is a, it is a pleasure to be on the, the Nats Chat podcast. I'm a, I listen. I'm, I feel like I'm on there every day, but this is my first time really being on <laughs> on the show. I in my my career bingo card is now complete. I just, I had an open square, uh, but you know, thank you for the opportunity. I'm a, a loyal listener. I do not have a secret weapon T-shirt uh, sporting you know around different ballparks around the country, but I, I'm a loyal listener. The fact you know about the secret weapon T-shirt says enough. That proves your uh, your legitimacy right there. I'm a buff. Yes. See, we, yes, we the next day after the game, we tune in to find out what we missed. What happened in last <laughs> night's game that we didn't figure out? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, right? Because we here on Nats Chat, we spew and shout our opinions and we, you know, we tell the whole world what we think and how we're right and everybody else is wrong. I'm curious from your guys' perspective, calling games. Where do you draw the line in terms of interjecting your opinions on things, you know, i.e. discussing strategy, talking about a guy who's struggling, that sort of a thing? You've been doing this for a long time. What to you is the appropriate approach to giving your opinion on things with the Nats in calling their games? I know we're going to end up here anyway because, Mark, everyone refers back to this. I think two words indicate my line. Nook Logan. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, that was about as far as I've ever gone with a player in a bad situation that made a mistake that that cost them a chance to win a game. 
Now the set. Here's the pitch. Swing and a ground ball. Flagged by Borowski. He throws home, and that's all they'll get. Now rounding third. Logan, what is he doing? The throw to third. He's out, and the game is over. What was Nook Logan thinking? What was he watching? Where was he going? I can't believe it. He's out. It turns out to be a double play, and the game is over. We talk about this all the time, especially when, you know, we looked at the team last year coming out of spring training, and you kind of know what you have. So unless something drastically changes, you're going to be faced with a lot of similar situations. And all you can do is tell people what happened. I mean, you could say it was a, a bad play. Your opinion makes it, a, whether it's a you think the player made a good or a bad decision. And we've always done that. We've never held back and said, Oh, well, I mean, uh, you know, it isn't always that you go into pinch run and get picked off on the first throw over, but it can happen. We've seen that happen. The check on us is that we know that the broadcast is on in the clubhouse in the home game. So, you know, if if a starting pitcher gets knocked out in the second inning, he's going to hear you the rest of the night if you're if you're bad mouthing him. So that's a pretty good, you know, governor on what you can say and, and how you say it. And ultimately, we work for the team and the folks who are listening to us are fans of the team. So they don't want us to be overly negative. But I, I think we have enough credibility to, to say it like it is. And if things aren't going well, we're not going to sugarcoat it and lie. I mean, it, to me, it's about having that credibility and telling the truth. And, and Al, you brought up the point about, you know, strategic decisions. You know, I, I like to kind of point out different options, maybe that, that Davey Martinez might have in this situation, whether to, to bring in this pitcher to create this matchup. And you, you basically, you highlight the scenarios and it, you know, you don't like to second guess if the, if the pitcher that he brings in gives up the home run. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean he made a bad move. Uh, it's just, you, you try to paint the scenarios as to what options he has. And, you know, sometimes when a, when a pitcher is brought in or a move is made, we don't always know what goes into the move. There might be things that, that are out of our scope of, of knowledge at that point, maybe another pitcher uh, you know, said that he wasn't feeling well warming up. And maybe there's a reason why a move was made that we won't know about until after the game. So if you go and criticize a move, you know, as a second guess, you open yourself up to being wrong because you might not have all the information at that time. Game five of the NLDS, the decisions being made by the opposing manager, Dave Roberts, Dave and I are looking at each other like, he's not bringing in Jansen. I mean, we, there were several decisions in that game that didn't make sense to us that worked out of the Nats' favor or... Uh, if you look at when they took out Granky in the World Series, you know, we're, we're probably like the Nationals hitters going, thank you very much. Not, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we think the same way that uh, that you guys do. We think the way fans do. But, you know, again, we will point out we don't always have all the information as to why a manager makes that decision, because a lot of times we don't know that somebody's, quote unquote, unavailable that game. Yeah. And as a reporter, we have to kind of follow the same standard. You know, we're live tweeting things often or in a first version of a game story that we publish as soon as the game is over. You might question something or, or make it sound like there was a bad move. And then you find out afterwards from the manager, oh, this guy wasn't available. OK, well, that changes the whole dynamic. So it is something we all have to kind of be cognizant of. Dave, you use the word credibility. And I think that's important there because it takes time to develop that with your audience and the team that you cover. And you both have that because you've been with them for so long. Charlie, from the beginning in 05, Dave, one year later in 06. I'm curious from your perspective, when did you guys feel that connection, that chemistry that you guys have together? Because listening to a broadcast, I think there are times it almost feels like you know what each other is going to say. <laughs> There's even times when you say something in unison <laughs> for certain situations. And so I'm wondering, did that happen? Did all that kind of happen 
early on, like in year one, or did it take years for you guys to feel that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that started in, in year one because uh, at that time when I joined in 06, you know, yeah, they had the magical run in 05, you know, falling just short of, of the postseason. But, you know, 06, you were, you were going through the, the ownership change and, and the club on the field was not very good. And uh, it, it became evident pretty early that just kind of calling the game straight, you know, was maybe not going to be the, the thing to do. And so, you know, we, I think we developed a, a real good chemistry that first year. I mean, it started from the first spring training in 2006 that, you know, hey, we kind of need to, to try to be entertaining along with informative. So uh, I, I think that chemistry really did develop early on and it made it easier when the team got good, you know, six, seven years in that, uh, that we had gone through those lean years because it, it's tough to make a 100 loss team seem interesting and give folks a reason to tune in. And whether that was, you know, Will Nieves walk up music or, uh, you know, any other little thing that we could cling to. Uh, just to, to build that connection, you know, I think those early lean years for our broadcast really, really helped uh, because we couldn't rely on what what the successes were on the field. We had to give folks a reason to keep listening, even when the game wasn't going the way you wanted to. I think the thing that helped us in that regard is you were still in a honeymoon period for the franchise, for the team being moved to D.C., for the baseball fans in the area who were starved for baseball for all those years to have their own team, I think it gave us kind of a, a, an advantage to be able to pull people in with us to keep them listening. If the team had been around 50 years and you're terrible year after year, that's a harder sell, you know, unless you're earning Harwell and you're doing the Tigers and they've been bad forever, but you're a his, historic franchise that still has had a fan base for years. But people were so hungry, as you know, as Frank Robinson said in year one, when a uh, team was contending and, you know, Frank would run into somebody and they'd talk about the game last night. Frank would almost be apologetic about losing a game. And he'd tell that story over and over. And, you know, whether it was a policeman or a doorman, well, you know, we're just happy to have you here. And I think that was still going on in 06, 07, 08 into the new ballpark that you had people who were just so excited and were so happy to be part of a fandom. There was that collaboration of fans who became that group of Nationals diehards very early, and they're the people who are still season ticket holders, friends to this day, that they've now known each other for, for years. All those people became our audience, and a lot of them still are. And they're the Nats Chat podcast audience, too. Yes, they are. We'll take them. We'll absolutely (laughs) take them. So you guys have both been calling baseball games on radio for years. Would you say that calling a baseball game on the radio today is significantly different than, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Or is what you did, you know, a decade or so ago, more or less what you're doing today? I think probably the biggest difference, I think, now and in years ago is people can watch and listen to a game at the same time if they're able to to sync up. Probably, you know, as many people now listen to the game when they're at the park as they do when they're not at the park. If they, you know, that always went on for years. People would take transistor radios to the park if they were that fan that still wanted to get all the information that they would get on the broadcast. I think, you know, fans have access to more information than they ever had. So they don't need to rely on us for a lot of the information they can get off their phones and the Internet and what have you. But I think still for the person who's driving in their car, we have to give them the same thing that we always have given them and try and describe everything that's going on as as best we can. 
that's what we do. You know, remember that you're the you're the eyes and ears of the of the fan who isn't at the game, who can't watch the game. And ultimately, for most people, that's the person driving in their car or their truck or whatever. I'll give you one big, big change. And then one thing that's really the same. The one big change is the access to the uh, stat cast data, the information that we can have at our fingertips in a second. I mean, as soon as, as the pitch is delivered on my iPad, I can have the spin rate, the location, uh, the vertical drop, the horizontal movement. And then on the swing, I can have the launch angle, the exit velocity, the hit probability. And to me, it's almost too much. I mean, you, you can lose yourself and go down a rabbit hole in that and totally bury your listener and forget what Charlie's saying, actually describing what happened. So there's so much more information available to us than there was even five years ago when a pitch is delivered. But to me, the thing that, that hasn't changed is that baseball on the radio comes down to the work that you do three hours before the game. And that's why the two years where we broadcast remotely set us back so far as an industry and as as a broadcast crew, because our biggest thing is is information and the stories of these players and the relationships that we build, because anyone can can read about uh, the background of these players. But to be able to actually go up to these guys in the clubhouse and talk to them and get to know them and get to know their backstory and ask them about uh, what happened last night or just to know uh, something extra about them. That's what the average fan doesn't get. They can get what their exit velocity is and what how they're doing in their launch angle. But to get to know these guys as people and to tell their stories on the air, that's where you can truly make a difference and elevate yourself as a broadcaster and as a broadcast. And when we didn't have that clubhouse access and we didn't travel with the team for two years. We had guys on the team who have come and gone that we never met. Like last year, I ended up doing an ESPN radio broadcast of a White Sox-Yankees game. I introduced myself to Josh Harrison. He'd been with the Nationals for a year and a half, and I finally met him when he was with the Chicago White Sox. So that really hamstrung us as to what we could give to the listeners when we had zero interaction. I understand, obviously, why we had to do that. But as a broadcaster, it really, really stung how we had to do things those last two years. And I just felt like I wasn't doing my job the right way, having no access to the players. Now, I'm glad you mentioned all that because... As a writer, we dealt with a lot of the same things, and it was such a difference coming back in 2022 and having the clubhouse access again. But I wanted to ask you guys about your prep for a broadcast. I had my one emergency situation this last year where I had to step in with Kevin Franzen and do a TV broadcast. And, you know, my mind was just racing the whole time. And I tried to do some prep work and I tried to learn a little bit about, you know, the Marlins pitcher that night and some of their bullpen guys from talking to uh, their TV crew and their radio crew before the game. I know you guys very frequently talk to the opposing team's broadcasters, but how much prep do you do before a particular game? And do you have to find that balance, like you were saying, Dave, about not bogging it down too much with that and letting the what's taking place on the field stay you know, primarily what you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, these days with what's available, preparation could be 24 hours a day if you wanted it to be reading up on players and, and compiling their career numbers. Again, it, it can be crazy. But I mean, Dave and I are kind of the same way. The first time we face a team for the year, an opposing team, that's when we do our most prep. And then you're just constantly uh, updating on players coming and going so that you have, you know, a little bit of a background of their career. You have notes on each player. You try and find some background information. I mean, for the most part, our fans want to hear more about our players than they do about opposing players. But we've always taken 
the position that for the Arden fan, if he and I were the listeners, we would want to know more than just the other guy's hitters batting right-handed, you know, and he's 26 years old. Who is he? You know, especially if he does something. I mean, everybody knows Nationals announced they're going to play the Yankees in that exhibition game. The first five guys in their lineup, everybody knows who they're going to be and about Aaron Judge and Stanton and Rizzo and because they have a history. But it's the other guys. When the Nationals traded to get Alex Call, it's almost like we had to make a call because we didn't know anything about him. He wasn't on our radar screen, a guy who had barely gotten to the major leagues in the Cleveland organization for a cup of coffee. And then all of a sudden, you know, very quickly, uh, we had to learn about his career path. So, you know, those are all things that you can do before you go to the ballpark. That was all we did in 20 and 21 when the team was on the road because we couldn't talk to anybody. I always joke about that with Dave. I said, I feel like we're the same as the guy in section 409, except we have one of these to talk about the game (laughs) with each other instead of the guy talking to the guy next to him in section 409. So it's a huge difference. And again, there's more information out there than we could ever use probably of of our percentage of prep i don't know 10 percent, five percent some nights two percent you know rain delays maybe a little bit more we get our share of those but you can do a lot sometimes you can over prepare spend a lot more time on it than maybe is necessary but it's, it's all what your comfort level is as you know when you stepped in to do that one game all of a sudden you had a comfort level that you couldn't establish right <laughs> Yeah, from from my group, when he mentioned Alex Call, I just remember you know trying to you know get a feel on him and, and gather. Him. One thing that jumped out with me is when he walked up to the plate, uh, his walk up music was Kenny G, a soprano saxophone, <laughs> and so I'm like, I, I got to find out about this. So I asked him, and he he in fact played the saxophone and was a fan of Kenny G, so I could drop that nugget in. So that that's the kind of the stuff that we didn't get in 2020 and 2021. But to me, as far as my routine, you know, a lot of the preparation on the other team is done well in advance of the series. Day of game, you're getting your lineup around 3.30, filling out your card and maybe pulling out some hitting streaks or trends. But then it's the time around the batting cage. And I I rely on the coaches, honestly. Every day, if I'm around the batting cage, I'm I'm asking Darnell Coles, hey, what are you working on today? Who are you trying to fix today? And then if you see Jim Hickey, and then if it's, you know, you talk to the first base coach about, does this pitcher have a good pickoff move? He's a left-hander. What does he do? He's steal tonight. So, and I think just with with these new rules, I'm going to be talking to the coaches a lot more about unintended consequences. How is the game changing? How can we take advantage of some of these rules? How is the the lack of shifting going to impact what we're trying to do offensively and defensively? The the base running, how is the the lack of pickoff throws going to to impact, you know, how you call the game? Are you going to call more pitch outs because, you know, now you're not going to be able to throw over as much. So to me, those interactions with the coaches are pregame material that you can sprinkle in through the broadcast over the course of the night. I was thinking about this just yesterday with the new rules. And I I think in some ways it helps. I don't know if it'll play out this way, balance things a little bit between maybe you'd call teams that are the haves that have all the big sluggers and the have nots and the teams that don't, because, you know, before you just, if you have the hitters that can out slug another team, you're going to win most games. Now I think it's going to be a little bit of a different story because that slugging team is going to have a harder time holding some other team down that can put the ball in play and defense is going to be more of a factor. So we're going to be talking a lot about these things and talking to players. One more thing about Alex call that, that was humorous to me. I'm on the field behind the cage during batting practice call gets in the cage with that stance where he's wide open facing the pitcher. And I'm standing next to Lane Thomas. I said, would you ever consider a stance like that? He goes, 
not on my life. There's too much to protect. I, you wouldn't catch me ever facing the pitcher dead on like that. So we actually, in, in a nice way, told that story on the air. And to the point where Alex Call had told us that everybody's tried to change his stance because they're worried he's going to get hurt batting that way. When it comes to a big moment that you know is coming or could be coming, and you know that the highlight of that moment will be played on podcasts and radio stations and maybe even on Sports Center. Do you think about the call that you're going to deliver? Do you compose in your mind what that call will be? Do you just go 100% organic? What's the way that you guys like to attack something like that? For me, I, I've never been one to, to kind of pre plan just because baseball is an ultimate game that doesn't follow a script. And I, I think of the calls that, that are most memorable in my career. I mean, there's no way I could have you know, predicted that. Uh, I mean, obviously, you knew that Howie Kendricks at bat, the bases were loaded, nobody out. There's a pretty good chance he might deliver the go-ahead run here. So your focus is, is laser tight and you're, you're kind of breathing, letting the crowd kind of set the, the atmosphere. And then, then you just you, you make the call and you, you say what you say. And then, you know, then when he hits the foul pole down the line, I mean, it was kind of the, the same thing. And I remember circling back to the previous home run earlier in the postseason with the, the do you believe it part two. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't thinking about, boy, this is going to be something I'm going to be hearing five years from now when I'm when I'm making it, because I probably would have stumbled on it. I just kind of kind of said what what came out naturally. So to me, I, I feel like if you try to script something, you're more likely to, to stumble over it and it might not fit the, the moment. So Charlie probably has a little different you know, feeling because he, he had the chance at least to know going into that ninth inning that the Nationals might be uh, on the cusp of winning with that four run lead. But, you know, sitting there in the in the tenth inning at Dodger Stadium, who knew that Howie Kendrick was going to provide that moment? So, you know, blessed that it came out the, the way it did. And I'm, I'm very proud of those calls. Now, I guess think about a lot of games where you have a walk off situation the Jason Worth at bat in 2012, or he's fouling all those pitches off. And the only thing that came to mind was the at bat that he had in early September against the Marlins. It was a similar at bat, not as many pitches. And I said, you know, wouldn't that be something, Dave? You know, right there, if he hit a home run and it, on the very next pitch, he hit that home run to end the game and force a game five. But you, you don't know that's going to happen. The only time it really came over me is what Dave referred to. When Altuve struck out on three pitches and there's two out and nobody on in the bottom of the ninth and the Nats are up by four, I looked at Dave, I looked around the booth, I'm like, this can happen right now. Now things are coming into your head that you think about, you'd want to say if it does, and then you don't want to screw it up. <laughs> so that was probably, you know, you're thinking, okay, don't get ahead of yourself, don't get ahead of yourself, it's one out, but Altuve like swung at a pitch above his head off the plate to strike out. I'm like, they look like they're done. and. You know, that feeling just came over you that this could happen right now. That was the only time I really had that moment where you start to think about if you hadn't thought about already, if you get a chance. It's The other thing about it was game seven. You knew it was going to end that night one way or another. So what are you going to say? What things do you want to make sure you get in there if the Nationals win? So it was almost impossible not to think about some of the things that you would say. And then when there's two out and nobody on, it's right upon you. So as radio broadcasters, you, this is one advantage you have versus the local TV broadcasters. They don't get to call the postseason. That's all national TV. Radio, you still get to be there for all that. And that's why all these iconic moments, we think of your calls. I think most Nationals fans couldn't tell you what Joe Buck said on the final out, but they could tell you exactly what Charlie said on the final out or what Dave said on the Howie Kendrick home runs. That's kind of the one 
thing still radio has going maybe versus TV. But I'm curious, you've both been in radio for a long time now. One? One? Well, one of, one of. But we know that this industry, and look, it applies to my industry as well, has changed a lot and will continue to change as we move forward. And so I'm curious, what do you guys think baseball on the radio is going to be like 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Do you think it will still have the same place and same importance? Will it take on a different role in some way? Will anything about it be different? Or do you feel like it's so established, particularly to baseball versus other sports, that it can continue to thrive even as the world and technology changes around us? Charlie brought up the one point earlier about folks in cars. I mean, to me, as long as people are are driving, they need us. If, so as long as this the game is is growing and, and healthy, uh, then, then I think there's a place for, for what we do. Now, I, I'm not smart enough to predict what it will look like in, in 20 or 30 years. I mean, I, who, who would have predicted that I'd be able to listen to to Vince Scully a few years ago, you know, driving home from a Nationals game on my on my satellite radio? The world is so much closer. But you know, whether it's on a on a phone or radio or some other device, the act of quote unquote radio broadcasting and baseball to me is a is a perfect marriage because of the ability to to be a storyteller and to and to be a companion for those for those three hours. So I think that that uh, that will continue to be. And again, as as long as folks have to drive their cars and you know, can't watch a monitor while they're driving. As long as we don't have self-driving cars and, and you, can, could be coming. You, can, you can watch a sporting event while you're driving the car, they need us. They can't get rid of us. So I, I think in some form, we will be there. And I think the thing that helps baseball, you know, this is for the most part a summertime sport. So people tend to be outdoors more, on the go more, in their cars, at the beach, long drive, to the beach. What are they going to listen to? Oh, I'm going to miss the game. No, I can get the game in my car. Then when you get to the beach and you're sitting on the beach, if you're a baseball fan, you'll listen to the game on the beach or at your pool, or we get messages from people who have the opportunity at home to watch the game, but it's such a beautiful night. They're going to go out and sit outside and listen to the game and just, you know, watch the sunset, listen to the game. For some people, that's how they've done it for years. The generation of the youngsters who everything is fixated on video games, you know, even my kids when they're younger, they'd watch something, go to, take them to some sporting event and they go, wow, this looks just like my video game. We might have to fix that <laughs> with some of the young. Yeah, No, it was based on what you're seeing, not the other way. The game's not based on the video game. It's the other way around. But again, if you've got the kids in the car with the dad or the bomb that listens to baseball, then chances are you're going to hook them in a little bit too and hope that continues to go forward. But again, as long as people are driving in some way, shape, or form, whether it's terrestrial radio, internet, through the phone, through some other device, we don't know yet. As long as teams can make money and help sell their product, we'll still be here or whoever comes after us will still be doing it. Well, hopefully one day we'll have Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler in a video game. I think a lot of people listening uh, would like to have something like that. But guys, uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time and uh, continued success. I know I speak for a lot of people listening when I say uh, we love having you as the voices of the Nationals, and uh, we hope that that continues for years to come. We appreciate it. See you soon.
All right, great fun with Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler. Our thank you to them for hanging out with us and our thank you to you for listening to this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. You can always tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the podcast, hit up Tim Shovers again, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. A thank you to the man responsible for the new theme song for the Nats Chat Podcast, Tim Newmark, uh, the composer of the song, a diehard listener of this podcast. Uh, you can find out more about Tim's great work at timnewmark.com. That's N-E-U-M-A-R-K, timnewmark.com. We'll be back with you in a few weeks for the next off-season installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Until then, for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and thank you for listening to Nats Chat. I hope I can steal a little summoning from you, Dave. Three balls, two strikes, the pitch. Swing it along,